This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Editor-at-Large of Recode. You may know me as someone who has AirPods in her ears so often, I might as well be a cyborg, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Dr. Susan Hockfield, the former president of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. She's also a neuroscientist who has studied the way cancer spreads in the brain and is the author of a new book called The Age of Living Machines, How Biology Will Build the Next Technology Revolution. We're actually here taping at the uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology at MIT on the very rainy campus today. I was visiting the Media Lab, uh, Joey Ito at the Media Lab. But Susan, welcome to Rico Decode. Thanks. It's a thrill to be here with you. Uh, so I, there's so much to talk about. I, I want to get a, a sense. I, I don't travel to Boston that often, but obviously Harvard, MIT, all the others are doing such really incredibly groundbreaking work in a lot of areas in technology, and Silicon Valley sort of sucks up all the oxygen. But there's so much stuff being done here, uh, especially at MIT. Talk a little bit about your background, because because uh, running MIT is a big deal. It's, it's a big deal for, for a lot of people, because a lot of people who are in Silicon Valley went to MIT or Stanford or one of the big institutions. Talk a little bit about how you got here and why you decided to write this book. Yeah, MIT is a really amazing place. And uh our country is blessed with a lot of phenomenal uh, universities, places of fantastic research and great education. Uh, MIT is a little different from many of them. I spent 20 years at Yale University before coming to MIT. Mm -hmm. I often mm -hmm. make the comment, uh, perhaps a little too cheeky, that uh, MIT and Yale are reciprocal institutions. Both are known for great strengths, Yale in the humanities and social sciences, mm -hmm. MIT for the sciences and engineering, and yet even with those great strengths, we have both institutions really strong representation in the other disciplines. Right, right, absolutely. So I, get, I um, joined Yale on the faculty as a neuroscientist mm -hmm. and uh, spent most of my career there, my scientific career there, and then was recruited into academic leadership by the then president, Rick Levin. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a, a story by itself. Mm -hmm. uh, MIT recruited me to be its president. I joined MIT in 2004. Mm -hmm. And, and what did you think at the time when you were going to do that, you're going to be the president of MIT? Were you, I mean, there's a different track of someone who's, who's a neuroscientist doing their work, right, which you need to work on, and then running an institution. What was your thoughts on when you were doing it? So the real transition for me happened when uh, Rick Levin invited me to be dean of the graduate school. Mm -hmm. And uh, like many 
faculty members, many scholars, many academics, I had not really considered taking on any kind of academic leadership role because that mm-hmm. seemed to me to be really kind of on the sideline of what was mad- sure. what really mattered, which was teaching right. students and mm-hmm. doing cutting-edge research. Uh, and uh, when he first approached me, I uh, demurred. Mm-hmm. And I went home and thought about it, and I realized uh, that the reason I had had such a spectacularly interesting, successful, and productive career as a scientist and educator was that people had stepped up into these roles, Mm -hmm. and it was about time for me to step up for the next generation. My graduate education changed my life, dramatically changed my life, and opened worlds that I didn't even know existed to me. And I felt it was time for me to do the same for others. So I told Rick that I would uh, be dean of the graduate school of arts and sciences for three years before going back full-time to my research. Needless to say... You didn't. I did not return full-time to my research, but then moved on to be provost at Yale... And then from there to come to MIT was an interesting transition. People often remark on my having been the first woman yes, to be do. president at MIT. Uh, but perhaps the more interesting first was that I was the first life scientist to right. be president of MIT. And that was in some ways— Which little, is known for engineering and really enge- uh, computer yeah. engineering particularly. A- engineering of all mechanical, sorts, mechanical engineering, materials, you know, electrical. I mean, we've got a full array of spectacular engineering departments, a great in- school of engineering, but very, very strong science. Strength in science really dates to the time before World War II when a physicist Mm -hmm. became MIT's president, Carl Taylor Compton, was invited to be president of MIT to build strength in the sciences, Mm -hmm. recognizing that this pairing of science with engineering was critical to developing technologies for the future. And indeed, that is the 20th century technology story. Right, right. Uh, similarly, you know, the strength built not just in the physical sciences, but also in the life sciences. A number of our faculty have won Nobel Prizes in physiology and medicine uh, for their discoveries in, in uh, fundamental biology. Anyway, so by the time I was recruited to be MIT's president, I had already made the transition from being a full-time researcher and educator uh, to being essentially a full-time academic leader. Right. Talk a little bit about that, how you create innovation. Because you've worked at places, especially MIT, where you're, you, you create innovation. You're, you're trying, you, you both work for the government. You have people that go into startups. It's, it's very, uh, it's sort of the, the way people move into these companies. How did you think about it when you came here? Because you came in 2000... 2004. Four. So it was the sort of the, right after the internet bubble burst and then it was back, was coming back pre-Facebook, pre a lot of the most recent things. How did you look at your role, what you were supposed to do for your students? You know, the biotech revolution had begun, right. but it hadn't reached the kind no, of intensity that it, right. it, it, it now has. Uh, so MIT has a different founding history from Yale. So MIT was founded in 1861 to deliver technologies for America's industrialization. Mm-hmm. No question, that was what William Barton Rogers, our founder, wanted to do. Mm-hmm. He felt there was uh, no education available for the people that were needed to take this nation into the industrial age. Right. And so MIT, uh, Rensselaer, West Point were all founded about the same time with the same kind of mission. So I often say that MIT was founded with tech transfer in our DNA. Right, the idea that this would be commercialized. This Absolutely. Right. And so while um, at other schools, this you know business from moving from the academy into industry is a little awkward, mm-hmm. at MIT it is as smooth as just about any place. Right. And uh, it's respected. Mm-hmm. Uh, faculty who live both lives 
are respected. One of the things that surprised me when I joined MIT is that a lot of our faculty entrepreneurs will leave to start a company for a little bit of time and come back mm -hmm. until they have figured out how to start their next company, right. leave to start a company, and then come back. I hadn't seen that at Yale. Faculty who started companies basically left and that pursued that and never, never really returned. Right. So this idea that it's a two-way street, mm -hmm. that you can both pursue fundamental research, drive it into applications, take those applications into the real world of the marketplace, right. and then come back is a really powerful force for MIT. Absolutely. And what do you, when you think about that, but a lot of the action was happening in the West. In the West, mm -hmm. how did you relate to that when you were thinking of that? Because a lot of, there was some, you know, I visit here a lot, and there were some Boston companies, but really it had moved really dramatically West um, with a lot of the bigger companies locating there. Yeah, well, digital technology we kind of lost. So mm -hmm. a lot of the computer revolution began here. Absolutely, on Route 128, yeah. It did. Yeah. And uh, we lost it. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things I studied when I came to MIT is Annalise Saxinian's book, mm -hmm on regional advantage, because I wanted to understand the difference between the Boston region's uh, innovation economy mm -hmm. and Silicon Valley's innovation economy. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's quite insightful about what it takes to build these kinds of vibrant economies, vibrant ecologies. And um, I thought it was really interesting. So regional advantage somehow got inside my brain and has become something that I've actually pursued and tried to foster. Mm -hmm. And regional advantage in terms of what we do on campus, in terms of how we interact between campus and our, our industrial neighbors. Frankly, how we build bridges across the academic institutions mm -hmm. so that we can do more with our resources than we could do on our own. And truth be told, that uh, if there's a theme for my presidency, it really was that. Among the things that uh, we started when I was president was the MIT Energy Initiative, mm -hmm. a cross-campus activity. Because when I arrived, I heard from almost everyone I talked to when I asked the question of what were MIT's opportunities and responsibilities for the next decade, mm -hmm. the answer I got invariably was, we should be doing more to invent the sustainable energy future. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was not an idea that I brought to MIT. It was an idea that was here. Right. And as I explored it, I discovered dozens of fantastically important energy research projects that were not yet seeing the light of day because it was one by one. Mm -hmm. and throughout MIT. Throughout, throughout MIT. Right. Across the campus. You know, across disciplines. Yeah. Economics and the business school and mechanical engineering and chemistry. I mean, really, uh, you know, everywhere I looked, there was someone or many people with an interest in designing a sustainable energy future. So we launched the MIT Energy Initiative as this cross-campus activity. Ernie Moniz and Bob Armstrong started out as co-directors, but Ernie became the director and Bob the associate director and really engendered a kind of uh, not just enthusiasm, but the, again, the regional advantage to, I think, really advance uh, technologies, policies, economics, uh, for a sustainable energy future. Mm -hmm. And so when you left, you were you were getting back to your roots. You had built a building, right? You had built this uh, uh, the Koch Center for Cancer. I don't have the full name. It's uh, the Koch Institute for Integrative Cancer Research. Right. And so what were you, you had been part of creating that, correct? Yeah. So that was another example mm -hmm. of this kind of idea of uh, bringing together different disciplines to attack a problem. Mm -hmm. So the other theme, so the primary theme I heard was, was, climate. was climate and energy. 
And the second theme was the opportunities around the convergence of biology with engineering. Right. When I first came to MIT, I was talking to everyone I possibly could to understand what was going on and, again, mm -hmm. what the opportunities responsibilities were. The dean of engineering at the time, Tom Magnanti, told me that of the almost 400 faculty in the School of Engineering, a third of them were using biological parts in their work. And as a sometimes know-it-all, I said, yeah, 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 biomedicine. <laughs> like, right, right, biomedicine, right. And he said, uh-uh, you don't get it. Way beyond biomedicine. Mm -hmm. And so that door began to open for me to understand, you know, what was going on. Mm -hmm. Engineers building technologies out of biological rather than physical parts. Right. And, you know, that became the second major theme of the presidency. And the Koch Institute for Integrative Cancer Research is one example. So the Center for Cancer Research was started in 1974 here at MIT. Salvador Luria, who had already won a mm -hmm. Nobel Prize, mm -hmm. was the founder of that. He recruited 12 faculty in the Department of Biology to be the founding members. And uh, they did spectacular work. Four of those original 12 uh, have the Nobel Prize at this point. My guess is that others of those 12 mm -hmm. will win the Nobel Prize before, you know, time is out on that. And uh, the current direct, then current director of the Center for Cancer Research, Tyler Jacks, came to talk to me as everyone did who had promises from the previous administration <laughs> <laughs> and said that uh, the Center for Cancer Research was... Uh, uh, had been uh, targeted to have either a renovation or a new building, and was, right. would I be committed to that also? And I said, well, tell me what's going on. Mm -hmm. And he described a turn in the Center for Cancer Research to cancer nanotechnology. Right. Basically, application of engineering concepts in the study of cancer. And I found that very intriguing because it resonated with this thing I'd been hearing. And I said, well, you know, we could do that. And that was kind of the founding conversation for what has become the Koch Institute for Integrative Cancer Research. The thesis is take the 12 cancer biologists that were in the Center for Cancer Research, pair them with 12 engineers, right. put them in the same building, get this conversation going, and see whether we can accelerate progress to finding new ways to diagnose, treat, prevent cancer, to accelerate progress on cancer, which has been, um, I mean, we've been making progress, but can we make progress faster? Right. It has proved to be successful beyond anything I could have imagined. Right. So to have this conversation— How, how so? To talk about what was the concept is that you brought them together for them to percolate ideas together. So— um, uh, what I've learned is you don't just throw people together and say, mix it up, have fun. All right, good luck. <laughs> good luck. Think of something. <laughs> Think of something. Uh, this cancer thing's been a problem. We need yeah. some solutions. Can you engineers find solutions? Right. Uh, so the 12 engineers were handpicked. Engineers will work on any problem with their technology. And so most of the engineers who joined the biologists mm -hmm. work on cancer and other things. Right. One of my favorite examples is uh, Angela Belcher who works on building batteries, using viruses to build batteries. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Yeah. Uh, but also using viruses to build cancer detection systems. So uh, a set of 12 engineers, but understanding that foundationally, people who are raised in a discipline have a certain vocabulary. They have a certain perspective on what a problem is. They have a certain perspective on what a great solution would be. And it's different. So we started out with... 
basically conversations between the engineers and biologists so they could understand one another's worlds, develop a kind of vocabulary that would allow them to approach problems in a different way. Right, to be thinking of of them. And we're going to talk a little bit about this because this leads right into your book, The Age of Living Machines, that you discuss the the virus battery. Mm -hmm. Do you call it the virus? I don't know what you call it, whatever. Mm, Virus-enabled, virus-built, whatever, yeah. Um, In our next section, we're going to talk about this. So you decided then to focus on this idea, this idea of living machines, the the combination of biology and and technology. Yes, and— Or not technology. Biology, engineering. Engineering, right. And the physical sciences. Right. The Koch Institute is one example. The Reagan Institute, a similar kind of mashup of clinicians, biologists, and engineers to develop a vaccine against HIV, AIDS, mm-hmm. and other things. Right. We started a new center called the Institute for Medical Engineering and Science. Similarly, can we figure out ways to bring uh, biologists, clinicians, and engineers together around some of the really big problems? And you think this is where the answers are? Because you do say how biology will build the next technology revolution. I do think so. All right. When we get back, we're talking to Susan Hockfield. She was the former, uh, she ran MIT, essentially, and now she has come out with a book called The Age of Living Machines. We're going to talk about that when we get back. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline, because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're here with Susan Hockfield. She has a new book out called The Age of Living Machines, How Biology Will Build the Next Technology Revolution. Uh, Susan, talk a little bit about how you decided to do this. You, I mean, you had been running institutions like Yale and MIT for years. You had abandoned what you were studying, or what, what, what did you want to do when you got out, like the idea of studying? You were a neuroscientist. So during my academic leadership at Yale, I had kept my lab, mm-hmm. uh, but had spent less and less attention at it. You know, my mind had migrated from problems in the lab to problems in the university. Fundraising, really? No. Uh, not just fundraising, no, I actually. I, you can talk about fundraising because I found that to be incredibly exciting yeah. and interesting to meet people who were capable of giving us enormous gifts, but mm-hmm. they were capable of doing that because they had had fantastic ideas that right. had changed the world. Mm-hmm. And when I moved to MIT from Yale, I decided not to move my lab, realizing that I would not have enough time in the day to be president, never mind (laughs) time to be president and run a lab. Mm -hmm. So I left my research. I decided it was time to uh, close the lab, which I did, and uh, came to MIT. And this theme of the convergence of biology with engineering had started when I was at Yale. We uh, invented a new department of biomedical engineering that was a hybrid between the medical school and the FAS campus. Mm -hmm. I felt really good about that uh, until I arrived at MIT and realized the scale of the enterprise Mm -hmm. was uh, tenfold different. Uh, And there was more going on here than um, I had ever imagined. So the idea of the age of living machines kind of emerged. uh, And I didn't really take concrete form in my mind until I spent a sabbatical year, and at the close of that sabbatical, I was at the Belfer Center at the Kennedy School mm-hmm. at Harvard. I was invited to give the Godkin Lecture, and I used this idea of the convergence of biology with engineering as the theme of that lecture and realized, with some encouragement from some close colleagues, that it should be a book. 
And right, it should so be a book. What do you mean by living machines? Define that for lay people who have some idea. I mean, people have ideas in their heads about robots who are sentient and, you know, mm-hmm. from sci-fi or Star Trek or wherever they're watching their things. But what is, and then, of course, you have the visions of robots that are all over Boston. Boston mm-hmm. There's all kinds of robot stuff going on. Um, but what does living machines mean? So this is it. very different from mm-hmm. what you've just described. I know and that. I know that's saying when, yeah, people, yeah. when you say living machines, people right. think, I don't know, data uh, from Star Trek or whoever. So I can hold up my cell phone mm-hmm. and say, this is a machine built with physics. Right. Or I could hold up an abalone shell Mm -hmm. and say, this is a machine built with biology. Okay. And, you know, what an abalone does is gather up components of, you know, stuff in the Mm seawater and creates an incredibly strong, yet light and sufficiently flexible shell. Well, why can't we build things that way? When the abalone dies, the shell, you know, falls apart into pieces and provides the resources for the next generation of abalone. Mm -hmm. So why can't we build things using the principles of biology? Rather than the principles of physics. Rather than the principles of physics, but, you know, at the end of the day, the biology is based on principles of physics. But why can't we fast forward? Let me give you an example from the book. Okay. Um, One of the great challenges for humankind going back thousands of years is clean water. Mm -hmm. And remains to be probably probably the most important one going forward. Worse and worse problem because uh, our fresh water becomes contaminated. There is, you know, less and less available for more and more people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we still rely on the same purification methods that were used right. 1500, 2000 BC. So right. filtration, filtration or distillation. Right. These are energy intensive. They're slow. They're expensive. You know, uh, can we not do better? So one of the ideas that I talk about in the book is using nature's genius Mm -hmm. to filter uh, water, and it ends up that all of our cells have a protein in their membrane, in the cell membrane, Mm -hmm. that is the conduit for water to pass into and out of the cell. And it's a little biological machine that only allows water to pass. It's a great filter of water. Why, let me ask you a question. Why do you call it a machine? Uh, it's an, I, I, li- I, I agree with you, but tell, explain why you call it a machine versus people think of these as biological processes or this never biology is never thought of as a machine. Uh, so it's interesting. So this was my insight. As, as mm-hmm. I, I have to tell you, my background is in neuroanatomy. Mm-hmm. I am fascinated by structure and how structure gives rise to function. So it was a bit of a stretch when I became a molecular neurobiologist to understand what a gene was to understand what a protein was. I mean, these things just didn't many, I, I didn't know what they were. And for me, the breakthrough understanding about proteins is they're little machines. Mm-hmm. They're machines that can move and do jobs for us, but they're built from biology. So a channel is a pore in a mm-hmm. cell. It's a protein, but the protein is a string of amino acids that had winds itself up into a structure that carries out a job. A job that they're doing. They're, and and machines job. have jobs. Either Mach- general machines or very specific machines. Yeah, and the components right. of machines have jobs too. Right. I mean, and uh, basically that's what proteins are. Proteins are the components that are you know form the whole machine of a cell. Mm-hmm. But the proteins themselves act as little machines. Little machines. Some of them are more active than others. Some are just kind of you know passive pores. Mm-hmm. In any case. So filtering water is a very difficult task. 
And with the discovery of this water channel called mm-hmm. Aquaporin, it was discovered by Peter Agre, another fascinating story how he got to it. But the idea is that rather than racking our brains to figure out how to build a new channel that would be selective for water, why don't we just use what nature has given us? Mm-hmm. And so Aquaporin uh, AS is a company outside of Copenhagen that's building water filters using the aquaporin protein. Right. And it's a very different way of thinking about mm-hmm. how to purify water. Potentially more efficient, potentially more specific than specific. the kind of, than the water purification methods that we've used before. Mm-hmm. Specific in that for water. Right, for water only. For water only. Only, only. And, and so the, the concept is that there are millions of these machines living in biology. There's zillions. Or for zillions. Everything, is, everything in biology is a machine. Yes. Is some kind of machine that solves a problem and that we just have to find, look at them. They're there. We just have to look at them. We right. have to find them. But we now have the uh, technology to find them. Mm-hmm. We have technologies to understand them. And you know, we know how to change them to fit our purposes. So the molecular biology revolution right. that decoded how information is carried in a cell, and then the second biology revolution, genomics, which allows us to tackle you know, genes and proteins in enormous mm-hmm. number, allow us to figure out how we might manipulate a protein, if it doesn't perfectly fit our needs, how to change it a little bit right. so it more uh, exactly fits the needs that we might want it to fit. So the concept is that this biology, that we could find these machines in whatever areas we're looking to solve, Mm -hmm. such as water purification. What else? Talk about some more examples. So uh, the battery. Go into the the, the battery. So so, so energy, sustainable energy is a really big problem for us. We love the idea of alternative energies to get off fossil fuels. But truth be told, wind and solar are not viable, Mm -hmm. really, at scale. Right. Without storage. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the sun doesn't shine. Sometimes the wind doesn't blow. And then what are you going to use? So without really phenomenally um, efficient and effective energy storage, wind and solar are not going to be, you know, really uh, replacement technologies for for, uh, fossil fuels. And um, so batteries is what energy storage devices are called. Right. And the technology for batteries is basically the same that Volta invented you know what, over 200 years ago. Yeah, it's so funny. I just had a discussion with, I, I don't mean to drop names, but Elon Musk was going on about this. It's yes. like, it's just a storage vehicle. Like how you, and then he was saying, it hasn't changed at all. It hasn't changed in any way. Right, so the components change a little yeah. bit. Um, so the lithium-ion battery that is mm-hmm. now kind of state-of-the-art, great batteries. But the problem with lithium-ion batteries is uh, to make them consumes a huge amount of energy. Filthy. And produces a huge amount of toxic waste. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's not really sustainable in the, you know, in the if you do mm-hmm. a full accounting. That's sure. not sustainable at all. So we need better ways of making batteries. And uh, Angie Belcher, a uh, faculty member at MIT, at the Koch Institute for Integrative Cancer Research, by the way, we can talk about her cancer research also, has figured out how to get viruses to organize battery components. Mm-hmm. So her lab now can make lithium-ion batteries, essentially uh, lithium-ion batteries, using viruses, Mm -hmm. but they make them at room temperature without any toxic byproducts. Right. So that 
potentially— So talk about the science of it. Don't get—I mean, I think it'll be too hard for everyone to understand, but the science of it is using viruses. Explain that. Right. So what a battery is, is a carefully organized, a closely organized set of materials— you know, lithium, cobalt, whatever you want to put in. But they have to be organized. It's not all jumbled up together. They Mm -hmm. have to be organized into essentially layers and components and be separated. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the standard method is a chemical method, but Angie looks at the abalone shell. If amalone can build this, can't we get living things to build what we need? Mm -hmm. And she has used viruses, standard lab strains of virus, that she has modified so that they bind the metallic components of batteries. Now, we knew they bound organic components, so what biological... Was the inspiration from what? What were they doing before that she saw this? What was their machine purpose before? Well, viruses organize uh, organic materials. That, right. That's what they do. They bind to your cell. They interact with the world around them through the proteins on their surface. So let's use them for So this. let's use the... So Angie's question is, could we use the proteins on the surface of a virus... Not to bind biological things, not to bind organic things, but to bind metals. Her first application was actually, could we use viruses to build wires? Mm -hmm. A simple problem compared to batteries. So she did that and then realized that uh, the... This uh, is to manufacture wires, right, that we might use, different kinds of wires. to build wires that could have some different kinds of designs in our current wires. Mm -hmm. And then she realized that the things that viruses organized well, metals, made them perfectly designed for building batteries. Mm -hmm. And so she's done a couple of things. She has uh, selected, she mutates viruses and then select those that bind to, let's just say, cobalt, right, or uh, carbon nanotubes. There are various things that you want to put in a battery to make Mm -hmm. them work better. And uh, so some of it she does just through kind of, you know, random mutation and selection. And some of them she does by targeted genetic manipulation. Mm -hmm. So she has a library of viruses that organize components of batteries. Because these viruses have a a, a rod-like structure, they're almost like crystals. Mm -hmm. And so you can get them to lie down in sheets Mm -hmm. with a highly ordered structure which, again, makes it perfect for uh, batteries. batteries. right? And uh, so she has these viruses that bind battery components, make sheets naturally, and that she then packages into the standard coin cell battery cases that... That then hold energy. That then hold energy. They work just like regular batteries. It's just right. that the cathode is built with a virus. The anode is built with a virus. You package them together, mm-hmm. and you have a battery. The batteries that she's building now have the same uh, charge density of state-of-the-art lithium-ion batteries. Huh. And they, most importantly, they recharge over the same number of cycles as standard lithium-ion batteries. Amount, right. This is all really important to have batteries that really work. Right. She told me recently uh, that the new batteries that they're building are built without lithium and without cobalt which everyone who reads any kind of, uh, you know, technology uh, section of the newspaper will understand that if we are sticking with lithium or cobalt, we're not going to get very far because these are uh, expensive and um, dangerous uh, metals to have around. And so they become made out of what? I'm not sure what she's using, but right. uh, it's not lithium and it's not cobalt. All right. So, the, so it's getting these cues from nature. Give me some more of their examples of what a living machine would look like. Take a big problem, like even if it's not being made right now. Yeah, so um, 
One of a, a really big problem, of course, is um, let me just back up. Okay. The biggest problem that we face right now outside of uh, people not getting along. <laughs> yeah, just, that's a big the, one. The biggest technological problem is That's why that, we have to get rid of the living and just replace them with living <laughs> machines, but go ahead. Is that we have over 7.5 billion people on the planet, right. and very sage predictions have it that we will be over 9.7 billion by 2050. That's right. And Susan, that's when I plan to die. But go ahead, keep going. Uh, well, it's fine. I'll probably be dead then too. Uh, but you know, we've got kids. No, population and is the a kids are enormous issue. And and we are already uh, stressing our planet to provide the energy, the water, the food, the food, and mm-hmm. by the way, the health and health care mm-hmm. that we need to have a vibrant and productive, po- you know, a global population. Right. And so we have to. Yeah, we can be hysterical about it, or we can say we're going to develop new technologies to meet these challenges. This has been a refrain throughout human history. Mm-hmm. Many people are familiar with the name of Malthus, mm-hmm. right? In 1798, Indeed. did this fantastic demographic study showing that population growth was faster than the growth in agricultural production. Mm-hmm. So we're all going to starve. And then he went back and looked through time and said, we always face this problem. Right. And when there are too many people, there's war, there's famine, there's epidemics, yes. there are ways of reducing the population, and that's coming. Basically, you know, the world is ending. Mm-hmm. Uh, what he didn't recognize is that new technology for agriculture were already in place, uh, four-field crop rotation, and these ships that were going around the world exploring things were coming on islands that were actually not much land mass, but a huge amount of bird poop, guano. Right, right. And those ships were bringing this back for fertilizer, fantastic fertilizer. So agricultural productivity in Britain... So technology Malthus, fixed it. Fixed Fixed it. the problem. Fixed right, the problem. Right, right, right. And of course, population actually grew even faster than had been predicted. Because of the technology, because of the ability because to feed of, more food. people. Yeah, food, food is great limiting for population. Right. right. In any case, we're at a similar point now. We've got to figure out how to provide for 9.5 billion plus people without uh, provoking war and famine and all of these mm-hmm. terrible things mm-hmm. in the past. So uh, energy, we talked about energy. Water is going to be critical. But health, you know, we have endless conversations in the United States about how we can deliver health and health care to our population at more reasonable cost and uh, with better access. And for many diseases, not all, but for many diseases, you can make a lot of progress Obviously, number one is prevention, mm-hmm. right? If you can prevent a disease, that's great. That's vaccination. So right. if we could persuade everyone to get vaccinated, we'd... Uh, yeah, it's an uphill battle these <clears throat> days. But go Unfortunately, ahead. we can go come ahead. back to that if you want. Yeah. Uh, the second best strategy for many diseases, not for all, is early detection. Mm-hmm. So particularly for cancer, if you can detect a cancer early, your uh, probability of actually curing someone from cancer is much higher than if you... You detect it late after a cancer has spread from its primary location uh, and metastasized to other locations. Mm-hmm. Our technologies for detecting cancer right now are have gotten better and uh, declining, you know, death rates from cancer finally after, you know, decades of trying, uh, resulting from uh, reduced smoking, but also from diagnostic procedures like colonoscopy and mm-hmm. mammography. Those are late, actually. So by the time you can detect a cancer using those methods, cancers are pretty far along. Right. 
So can we move it earlier? So one living machine mm-hmm. uh, that uh, Sangeeta Bhatti here at MIT has developed is using nanoparticles that detect the earliest signs of cancer, that is the changes in the biology of the mm-hmm. cancer, for a detection method. This is a, this just, I love this. This just blows my mind. Mm-hmm. So let me see if I can explain it. I'm waving okay. my hands, but without, right. without a whiteboard or a blackboard. Right. So you take a nanoparticle and decorate it with a short stretch of a protein. Mm-hmm. One of the hallmarks of many diseases is they make disease specific processes and disease specific enzymes. An enzyme is a kind of protein that cuts other proteins, we'll just say for now. Mm -hmm. And for a cancer to grow, it's got to grow in an environment that's very dense. It can't grow unless it cuts up the uh, material standing in its way. So Mm -hmm. cancers make particular kinds of enzymes. Right. So Sangeeta thought, huh, if we could detect that enzyme, we could actually say whether there's a cancer or not. Mm -hmm. So the nanoparticle has a little stretch of protein on it that is contains the site for that cancer enzyme. Oh, okay. So the idea is you put this decorated nanoparticle into a patient. If there isn't any cancer, that nanoparticle stays whole, eventually will um, uh, degrade. But if there is a cancer, that the cancer's enzyme will clip off those protein fragments. Mm-hmm. And she's designed it so that the protein fragment is small enough to be filtered by the kidney into the urine. And so you can detect it. You can detect it. Now, we all happen to be familiar with over-the-counter pregnancy tests. Right. We already know how to do that. Mm-hmm. And detecting something in urine is so much easier than detecting it in blood. Right. Blood is full of other proteins. Urine, normal urine, has no protein background, essentially no protein background. And uh, what she and her team have shown is that at least animal models, this synthetic biomarker that she's designed can detect cancers when they're about a tenth the size of current detection mm-hmm. techniques and at, you know, one would uh, anticipate a fraction of the expense. Mm-hmm. So um, very powerful so, technique. So a machine that would go in your body like and then pee out, essentially, exactly. to give you the information. Yeah. All right, that's fascinating. We're here with Susan Hockfield. She is the uh, former head of MIT, and she has a new book out called The Age of Living Machines, How Biology Will Build the Next Technology Revolution. When we get back, we're going to talk about more of these machines and how we fund them and focus on them going forward. We're here with Susan Hockfield. Her new book is called The Age of Living Machines. We've been talking about um, a lot of things, uh, virus batteries made of viruses, essentially, nanotechnology that would allow you to detect cancer early, um, and the idea that machines, the way we think of them in Silicon Valley or in technology, um, are not or the machines that are coming. How do you shift the thinking of this? Because I think so much has been focused on computing and digital and things like that. How do you shift the idea that we move into this era? I know there's some analog stuff going on, like self-driving cars and all kinds of things like that. And so there's more analog and tech computing coming together, and analog activities and, and in healthcare. How do you shift the idea that this is where the investment should be made and this is where the big money should be spent? Because so, it hasn't been. No, know. so this is a, a very big challenge, and right. there are two pieces of this. It, there is the funding of the fundamental research that leads to 
a possible opening in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And then there's the funding of the uh, the passage through the into the marketplace. Right. Exactly. So let me first talk about the basic research funding. We talked earlier about how uh, biologists and engineers are raised in very different disciplines with very different vocabularies sure. and creating opportunities for these people from different cultures, essentially, to come together is a challenge, but it's a challenge that I think uh, we can meet and more and more places are trying to figure out how to actually make that happen in terms of bringing people together. But if you think about how these activities are funded, our federal funding agencies have done truly a magnificent job in catalyzing discovery. Right. But they were set up along, let's just say, a 20th century model. Mm -hmm. So the National Institutes of Health, which has delivered incredible things. I mean, HIV AIDS was a death sentence and within a decade Mm -hmm. became a... uh, Because it was mobilized. Because it was was eventually mobilized. Eventually mobilized. Took a long time. Uh, the government. I mean, I'm talking yeah, about the government uh, uh, to focus uh, uh, in on A long time, meaning a couple of years. <laughs> yes, yeah. No, initially so, the Reagan administration, the focus on it, the, to focus and mobilize it. But if it. we think about when HIV AIDS was described as a disease. Right, I guess in the 70s. No, 80s, it was in the 80s. 80s, 80s, 80s yeah, yeah. And yeah. we actually, you know, got— We now have solutions, yeah. yeah fantastic. But you're right, uh, mobilizing the government to uh, take a particular issue seriously uh, takes— a nation's enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. So the NIH does biomedical and biological research. The National Science Foundation does engineering research and some physics research and some math. The Department of Energy does a lot of physics research. And if you think about how are you going to fund a project that crosses these disciplines, that is really hard to do because none of these agencies is really set up to do that. Right, and they have NASA doing space. Yeah, And, and from time to time, we mount fantastic cross-agency collaborations. The National Nanotechnology Initiative. The United States was nowhere in nanotechnology mm-hmm. until we realized that we had to get moving, and a cross-agency collaboration was built to make that happen. The Human Genome Project. Cross-agency, it required the development of great technology and great biology. We figured right. out how to do that. Right. But it's episodic. The right. New Brain Initiative is another great example of you know crossing agencies. But... It's from time to time. So we don't have a standard way of creating opportunities to cross disciplines. Right. We've got to get better at that. And so how would this be that way? I mean, how is—and it requires the administration also to be—or maybe not. Maybe these things just go on, these various institutes. How do you get So the, it certainly helps to, for the administration to be enthusiastic about, about research science. and about science. Right. It helps enormously. I think you can safely say this one is not— this one is not has yeah. not demonstrated enthusiasm for it, but Congress uh, continues to right. step up to the plate and say, "Too bad, we're going to fund it. We understand its importance. If you look through our history, this is the source of not just uh, medical cures. This is the source of the technologies that have built our economy, right? Exactly, and provided jobs and futures for our nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can come back to that later if you like. Yeah." But the agencies themselves can organize themselves. Uh, the Office of Science and Technology Policy has played a role in making that happen. You know, my own view is we need a go-to strategy rather than reinventing it episodically to right. deal with some right. particular It's a really good way to put it episodically. So that would be great. Mm-hmm. So that's on the funding, the initial the government, part the of government. it. The government. But then we've got to get these technologies out of the lab into the marketplace. Mm-hmm. 
And this is a place where I think also our national policies are misaligned. Mm -hmm. The kinds of technologies I've just described are what we at MIT call tough tech. Mm -hmm. They are tough. Uh, let me give you one example of just how hard it is to take a biologic from a lab into the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So Herceptin is a Genentech drug for a variant of breast cancer that was a death sentence. It's a, called HER2 positive. It has a particular marker on it. And the HER2 gene, between the discovery of the HER2 gene and the FDA approval of Herceptin, 20 years. Right. And not because no one was trying. Mm -hmm. They were working as hard as they can. And standardly for any biological product, you know, the guess is, you know, the estimate is it's not a, a guess. It, it is overall, it's about 10 years and a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, to build a new battery company, similarly difficult. Right. And so you have to have long-term investments you have to uh, set up conditions that encourage people to put in the money and have the stamina to last through all of the wrong, you know, blind alleys and, sure. you know, failed pursuits that you're going to do before you actually get to the promised land. Currently, we don't uh, privilege long-term investments. Right. Our investments, you know, get, you know, the same kind of uh, tax advantage if you invest for you know, a year or two, if you invest for 20 years. That's not a recipe for success for these really tough technologies. We talk about building a new manufacturing base in the United States. Mm -hmm. We've got to start by building the technologies that we want to manufacture. We can right. go back to the technologies of yesteryear, but truth be told, you can do that less expensively someplace else. Right. So we want to be able to design a new manufacturing sector that makes use of these new ideas. But for that, we need long-term investment. So how do you do that? How do you get that, people thinking like that? I mean, you have people with plenty of money. There's plenty of money all over. They tend to, to fund universities or, or long-term research projects. But how do you get people thinking like that? Where yeah, we're that... talking about bigger money, actually, yeah. when we're talking about industrial productivity. So putting the, the amazing amount of money into it, how does that happen? It happens through incentives and... Uh, uh, there are a number of things that we've done in the past to encourage those kinds of incentives and to privilege those kinds of companies. Right now, there is uh, hardly an incentive to do that. The big accelerant for the second half of the 20th century mm -hmm. was coming out of World War II, where we had poured federal dollars right. into research that created the technology marvels of World War II. And uh, toward the end of the war, FDR turned to... Vannevar Bush, his uh, primary science advisor, and said, can we not f figure out how to transform this strategy for war into a strategy for peace? Right. And Bush laid out a blueprint for the second half of the 20th century in America that actually, you know, put all the pieces together and produced not just uh, a research enterprise, an educational enterprise, and an industrial enterprise— that was unrivaled in the world. So um, where is that now? Because because you you it, these do things do come out of war. They come out of conflict and, and things like that. And there are obviously controversies in Silicon Valley about funding a lot of war related stuff. But we are not in a state of war. We haven't been in a state of major war for a very long time. Luckily, how do you get that kind of urgency then to to create things? For peace, I guess, because that's where it really is. Because we'll be fighting. We will have wars over water. We'll have wars over resources. We'll have wars over energy. Um, it seems that those are the wars to come. 
going forward, if I'd had to guess, one would have to guess. Yeah, well, there is evidence of, of these being the catalysts of war. Mm-hmm. And so motivating the nation to understand that we have an opportunity not just to, for the promise of peace, mm-hmm. but also for the promise of the next generation of economic growth. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell you, you know, following World War II, the United States played this game essentially by ourselves. Uh, what might have been our rivals in Europe were building, you know, rebuilding their, you know, their countries after the war. We had emerged from the war without the need to rebuild, you know, our destroyed cities. So we had that advantage. But now everyone understands the recipe that the United States used. And while I was president, there was hardly a week that would go by when someone from some other country wasn't in my office saying, we understand what the United States did. We want to do it in our country. Mm-hmm. Can you help us understand how we can build something like MIT? Because we understand that is part of the recipe to build an economy right. like the United States has enjoyed. Right. And um, it is exciting. It's awesome that other countries want to build these things. But what it means is we've got competition. Right. And if you look at the investments, exactly. China, 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 and also China. China, 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 uh, and other smaller countries, but China's putting the kind of money behind this that is stunning. Mm -hmm. You know, when the um, Chinese colleagues uh, (laughs) came with the same question, uh, they were enormously insightful because many of the others would say, we just want to know how to build engineering. We need engineering departments because that's where the tech transfer comes from. We understand that's how technology gets developed. But our Chinese colleagues would say, we get it. Uh, We're going to build the best physics departments. We're going to build the best math departments. We're going to build the best biology departments. We're going to do basic science because we understand that that's at the foundation of the engineering of the technologies for the future. Mm -hmm. A very broad understanding of the intellectual backdrop for uh, economic growth. Mm-hmm. For sustained economic so growth. So finishing up, how do we do that? How do we how do we dominate the age of living machines? Because it worked out pretty well. Like the last the last technology booms were pretty. Or is it just a global? It seems like it still isn't a global situation for anybody. It's a Chinese situation or American situation or a European. How do you how do we get our arms around owning this part of the future? Well, there are a lot of components to it, and I don't. Um, uh, I, I haven't given up hope that the United States will be a leader in this. There are things that we do in our culture that are absolutely fantastic. Um, uh, our, our insisting on, um, you know, scientific integrity, our sense of, uh, you know, real competition, internal competition to, you know, figure out what kind of technology is going to win. I love the idea, although I think it should be funded differently, of people making bets, different people making bets on, on you know, various technology that it's not all the government. Government isn't saying, you know, what we do and what we don't do. One of the recipes that Vannevar Bush laid out in his Science the Endless Frontier Blueprint was about federal funding. How is federal funding distributed? Peer review. So he understood that it was the community of scientists, sure. the community of engineers who knew best where the frontiers would emerge from. You know, so you can say it's top-down because it's federal funding, but it's top-down mediated mm-hmm. by the community who are at the leading edge. A brilliant, of where know, it's going. brilliant solution. So... Finishing up, what would be the most exciting living machine you can conceive of that you've heard? <laughs> wow, what a great question. Um, I don't know that I have a favorite. I am, you know, I always say that my crystal ball gets a little fuzzy five years out. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm not sure if there were some people who 25 years before that computer that wrote on Apollo 11, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. which was an amazing achievement, uh, there were people, you know, probably who thought there could be a computer like that. It's a step-by-step -step evolution. So I see a lot of potential in all of the technologies I've called out and well beyond. There is some kid in some lab at MIT or in any place anywhere in the country who has an idea, a new idea of a living machine mm -hmm. uh, that you or I couldn't. Well, what one would you make? Ah, Oh, I'd make them all. Okay, why? I think, I think water is critical. I think energy is absolutely critical. If we don't figure out how to provide sustainable energy, our planet is doomed. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I really do worry about is this uh, current lack of confidence in experts and expertise. It's what science is about. Mm -hmm. We test ideas. We contest ideas. And if we don't believe that there are things that are more right than others, which is where we place our bets now, we have no way of making it into right. the future. I agree. The truth is now political. You get that. Uh, so you have to be political. I get that, and it terrifies me. Yeah. So we have to continue to insist on an apolitical realm. Politics are never out of it entirely. Mm -hmm. We have to insist on... Uh, a understanding that there are people who understand areas that are better than we do. Mm -hmm. I don't pretend to be an engineer. Mm -hmm. I don't pretend to be a physicist. If the uh, physicists at MIT tell me that they've, you know, figured out gravitational waves, I'm going to trust them more than I'm going to trust myself to imagine whether right. or not they're gravitational waves. But this idea that there are people with expertise that we should, you know, value and value their opinions greater than others. I understand that People might debate the fine points of climate change, mm -hmm. but the fact is that the best science indicates that we're in trouble. Right. If an asteroid were coming toward Earth, don't you think we'd mount every possible defense to you know, send it off its course rather than say asteroids don't exist? Of course we would. Mm -hmm. So it's simply folly, to my mind, not to step up and invent the technologies that are going to prevent us from the ravages of climate change that you know, we're inflicting on the planet, or frankly, whether it's us or anyone or, or some other um, natural operation, right. it's our job to protect ourselves very, so that we have a better future. Absolutely. Or maybe we'll just learn our lesson. It's probably the way it's going to go. Unfortunately, the way it's going to go. Um, well, I hope not. Yes, me too. Well, this is a fascinating read. This is Susan Hockfield. Her book is called The Age of Living Machines, including machines that will help us have cleaner water, uh, more sustainable energy, and... I don't know, a dating app? I don't know. <laughs> what is the dating app of a living machine? It's a person. Um, anyway, How Biology Will Build the Next Technology Revolution, I urge you to read it. Thank you very much, Susan. Thank you, Kara. It's fun talking with you. Thanks to you all for listening. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is Erica America. And my producer, Eric Johnson, is Hey Hey ESJ. Make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media and Pivot. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.